Right, good morning. Or almost afternoon. This is the uh, crowd that's not afraid of a little warm weather, yeah? Awesome. If you've got a Bible, turn with you to Matthew chapter 5. If you're at home with us, we're glad you're joining us as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you remember that last week, uh, we kind of, I gave you a recap. Let me give you a bit of a kind of catch up to speed, and maybe you're just joining us for the first time. So I'll catch you up to speed as well. If you remember that first section of the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Beatitudes, which means blessed. It's just the Latin for blessed, which is a way of saying this is the kind of life that God blesses. And he talks about our character. He's dealing first with the kind of person we are internally. And now he's going to turn and start to talk about what we do because Jesus is always more interested in the heart and then the actions that heart produces. And we're actually gonna see that continues to be true even as we start to look at specific examples now of the way a Christian should live, the things that we should do. And so if you remember last week, we said we were kind of turning a corner in the sermon when Jesus said that I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And among many things that that means, perhaps chief among them, is that what Jesus was saying was, in response to some criticism, perhaps that because he preached the gospel of grace, because he hung out with with um, sinners and people that everybody kind of recognized in society, maybe as making some bad choices, because he spent time with them uh, and invested in their lives, there was this criticism that Jesus didn't care about God's law. They didn't care about righteousness, that he said, you can live however you want, and it doesn't matter to God, and Jesus, in response to that, is essentially saying, no, the righteous standard of the law remains, and let me teach you, though, that you haven't understood what that righteous standard truly is. And so we saw that one of the things that he was saying when he said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, was that he was teaching us that the moral requirements of the law still stand upon us as a good and right way to live, not as a way of being justified, because we know that the Bible teaches that through the works of the law, Paul says in Galatians, no one will be justified before God. In other words, you can't live the law perfectly enough in order to be right with God. But what you can do is recognize that the moral requirements of the law are still a good way to live in response to the grace that you have received if you're a follower of Jesus. So that when he says, don't murder or don't commit adultery, we recognize that's a good way to live, yes? Absolutely. And I'm glad some people said yes to that. Fantastic, all right. So as he explains that then, he's going to start to explain, remember in verse 20, the verse right before what we're about to read this morning, He says, you have to have a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And partially what he meant, probably mostly what he meant, is that they had a righteousness that was all about external appearances. It was good enough for them to appear righteous on the outside, and they were less concerned with what was in their hearts. And he's saying to us, we have to have a righteousness that goes all the way down to the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to give us and then to live out that righteousness. And so that's what we're kind of turning the corner into now is specific examples of how a believer should live. And he's gonna now give us six segments of the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to give this prevailing theme about what a a Christian should live like. So we're gonna hear this statement a lot. You have heard it said, and when he says that, he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's what they taught you. Now here's what I'm going to teach you. They taught you that this was the fulfillment of the law, and I'm gonna tell you what the true fulfillment of the law looks like. Part of what Jesus meant when he said, I came to fulfill the law, was I came to teach you what it really means. I came to teach you the true understanding of this and how you live in it and how you walk in it. So that's where we turn to this morning. Now, the first example, the first thing that Jesus is gonna address, he's gonna address anger within us. He's gonna address anger 
within us. He's gonna say that it's equivalent to murder. And so here's what I wanna do. Just right at the outset, can I say that some of you who are perhaps less angry kinds of people, maybe you are more given to, maybe you're a happy-go-lucky, kind of go-with-the-flow, really relaxed kind of person. And so perhaps when, I hear you, when you hear me say, we're gonna talk about anger, you think, awesome, not my problem, I'm good, right? And it's probably no surprise to you that like I do every week, I'm gonna say, you better pay attention Right, Because one of the things that I want you to recognize is that anger is really dangerous because of how subtle it is. That anger can take root in our heart like a little seed of bitterness. And before we know it, before we even know that we've cultivated it and cherished it and kind of held on to it, it grows. Maybe you can imagine it this way. Imagine that you had access to, to purchase a baby tiger as like a house pet. That'd be pretty cool to have a baby tiger, wouldn't it? There'd be like, you'd be like, it's really cute, it's exotic, like how many people own a baby tiger? Like, I'm unique, right? And there's ways in which you might really like the idea of having this really cute, cuddly baby tiger as your pet. And I would offer that we do the same things with the seeds of anger, with the sort of seeds of bitterness that take root in us. We kind of cherish them a little bit. We think that they're well-deserved. We might even think they make us feel better than somebody else in subtle ways that has done something perhaps to us. And it's caused us to say, this anger, actually maybe it provides me some safety. This anger, this like little seed of bitterness, I kind of cherish it in ways that it makes me feel better or right or good or safe. And can I tell you, friends, that those baby tigers, they grow up and they become full-fledged adult tigers. And can I just tell you that if you have a baby tiger that grows into an adult tiger in your house, you will no longer be the one ruling your house. The tiger eventually rules. If the tiger is not fed, the tiger will eat you. And so you have to keep feeding the tiger. And our anger is just like that. It may start like a little baby that's super cute, and maybe we feel justified hanging on to, but it ultimately will become something that will destroy us. That's part of what we're gonna see today as to why Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you that if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. There's already the disease present in you that is more important than just the symptom of that disease. And so I just wanna give you that word of caution today, not to check out, but to listen in. And particularly, if you find that in your heart, your, your first impulse is to say, well, I'm not a really an angry person. I want you to recognize that there's possibly a danger for you. Let me say this as well, because we're gonna get a little later into, and give you kind of a heads up as we get towards a section of of the text that we start to look at. We're gonna ask, is there such a thing as justified anger and unjustified anger? (coughs) Can I tell you that one of the real dangers as it pertains to anger is that you can start out in a place where perhaps that anger is justified, but unjustified anger held onto or sorry, justified anger or righteous anger held onto can become unrighteous anger really quick. It can become unrighteous anger really quick before you know it. And so the thing that may have been justified and righteous becomes unjustified and unrighteous really fast. And that's one of the reasons it's so subtle. One of the reasons it's so danger. So just kind of lock that down if you will a little bit. Let's look now at Matthew chapter five, verses 21 through 26. And let's see what Jesus says here in this first section says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, so Jesus addresses this idea of anger for us, and I wanna give you, we've got three points today. Let me tell you that as we're reading this, just by way of background, one of the things that should immediately come to mind as we're reading this text, as it would for all of Jesus' original hearers, is immediately Genesis 4 would come to mind for them. And if you remember in Genesis 4, right, right after Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sinned by rebelling against God and choosing to want to be their own gods in control of their own lives, not surrendered and in submission to God, the very next sin we hear about is the sin of murder, right? When Cain kills Abel, Cain and Abel, brothers, offer God something. God is well pleased with Abel's offering. He is not pleased with Cain's for a variety of reasons. We're not explicitly told, but he's not pleased with Cain's offering. And then if you remember the conversation that God has with Cain, you remember these words. I think it's verse six or verse seven in Genesis chapter four, when he says, Cain... Why are you what? Angry. Cain, why are you angry? If you do well, won't things be right with you? And then he says, don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? That sounds a lot like a what? Like a tiger. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have its way with you, but you must master it. And then Cain does what in his anger? He murders his brother, Abel. So everyone who's hearing Jesus say, you shouldn't commit murder. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you have already murdered. What they're reflecting back on is that anger is the disease that produces the symptom of murder, and Jesus is trying to get at the heart. So here's the first point of the sermon today. The general principle that we need to reflect upon in all six of the next sections of the Sermon on the Mount is this principle. It's always the heart that matters most. It's always what's in the heart that matters most. I don't say that to dismiss that actions matter very much. They do. But it's out of the heart that our actions are produced. And so Jesus, in all of these next six sections, is going to say something. You have heard that it was said this. I'm gonna tell you this. And in each one of those things that he tells us, he's pointing and aiming at your heart. He's pointing and aiming at my heart. And he's saying, it's not enough to simply say, I didn't murder, you have to ask, am I harboring anger in my heart? And if I am, that's tantamount to, equivalent to murder, because that's the disease. That's the thing that kills. That's the thing that grows and becomes a whole harvest of unrighteousness. So that's what he's getting at here when he says, you shall not commit murder. Now, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us, again, What's the true interpretation of the law in Exodus chapter 20 when he says, don't murder? The point of that, Jesus is saying, was not simply to prevent you from killing somebody physically. The point of that was to show you that murder is an offense to God because it does a couple things. Number one, when I commit murder, when I physically take a life, and again, here we're talking about murder not in the sort of judicial sense of the court decides that a life is forfeit, 
We look back to Genesis chapter nine and the covenant that God made with Noah and in Genesis nine, six, God actually says there, when you take a life, your life will become forfeit because you've done something, and this, here's the important part, you've, you have degraded what God has called valuable. He says the reason your life is forfeit if you take another life is because you have destroyed someone made in the image of God. So when he's saying, when Jesus is teaching about sort of the true meaning of this commandment, thou shalt not murder, what he's saying is the heart of that is that you have with your action declared something as invaluable that God has declared as valuable. And in doing so, you have set yourself up as the judge. You have set yourself up as the one who declares and determines where value comes from. But God is the one who declares and determines that. And the second part of that that's like it where Jesus is saying the reason murder is a problem is not just because you've physically taken a life, it's because you have determined to take a role for yourself that only God reserves for himself. God is the giver of life and the creator of it and he's the taker of it. And when you put yourself in the position of doing that, you put yourself in his place. And so you've done two things. You've said, I declare something invaluable or unvaluable that God has said has immense value and I have declared that I am the judge in place of God who as creator says, I am the one who determines the number of days that people live. I am the one who gives and takes life. And I do so righteously and perfectly. You do not. So that's what he's pointing out and when he gives us this law. Now, let's trace that then back to why does he say that anger is equal to murder? Why does he say if I've had anger in my heart that I have essentially murdered my brother or my sister? And friends, let's make sure we understand this. In particular, he has in mind here today, not our relationships with those outside the faith, but with those inside. He's talking about the way we relate to each other. That's why he says, if you do this to a brother, if you do this, and we could say to a sister, he's talking about those who walk alongside of us. So he's, we're talking in-house here today a little bit. Yes, you with me? Deeply important that we understand that. So he says, uh, why is anger then equivalent to murder? Why have I murdered if I've, held anger in my heart towards my brother, towards my sister. The reason is because I'm doing the exact same thing that if I physically murdered someone, I have said in my anger, in harboring that, I have said, God has declared you valuable, but I declare that you are not. I hold judgment against you, and I have taken the role of judge and jury in your life and over you by harboring this in a way that God says is his role to do that. Imagine for a second, if you will, sort of in terms of the value, I want you to understand the value of every human person inside the church and outside the church made in the image of God. I already alluded to Genesis chapter nine where God says the reason if you take a life, your life will be forfeit, he says to Noah, is because all people are made in my image. And as image bearers, I give them value. They have worth. They have dignity. Therefore, to take that life is to take something that I have called valuable. Imagine for a second that after the service today, I gave you a plane ticket to go to Paris. And then I gave you a couple tickets to get into the Louvre. You guys are familiar with the Louvre. Probably the most famous museum in all the world. It has treasures of art that are inestimable in value, right? You could go through there and see great statues, right? You'd see your Degas and your Michelangelo's and you see your uh, Renoir's and your you know, your Rembrandts, and you would walk through that and you would be like, man, I'm astounded by the beauty of these priceless works of art. Now imagine that in addition to the tickets and the plane ticket, I gave you a can of spray paint and said, your job when you go in there is to just deface every piece of art that you can find. Just get in there and have some fun. Just start spray painting all over them, whatever you want, just graffiti it up, 
right? You immediately recognize that's a problem. Why? Because these works of art are beautiful. They have value and there's something we, we treasure so much so that we've created museums to put them in so that they're protected and that we can come and admire them and, and look at their beauty. Friends, as offensive, if you're an art lover in particular, as offensive as the idea of someone just coming in and going crazy on all these great works of art is, when you harbor anger in your heart, you deface the most valuable work of art in all the universe. You deface another human being. You devalue them. It's, no, it's, it's far worse. And the artist of these creations is not Rembrandt and not Michelangelo, not Da Vinci. As great as those artists are, the artist of every human life is God himself the great artist who gives value to all that he makes because he puts his image on those living beings. Are you with me? Church, do you hear me? Part of the problem with anger is that it defaces and it degrades and it cheapens and it lessens. Murder may be the outward expression of it, but the anger in the heart does the same thing. Even just harboring, even if you don't say a word, there's a reason why Jesus says if you insult them and if you say you fool to them that you have essentially murdered them, it's because he's pointing out that anger is the root problem and it leads to murder, but it leads to lesser examples of that that are no different in their degrading power. The insults that you speak from your mouth, the saying you fool, he's not, by the way, just saying as long as you don't say call him a fool, you can call him whatever you want. He's saying anything that comes out of your mouth that insults them and degrades them and lessens them is murdering them. Friends, that's what I need you to hear today is that those things are not a small thing. So, you guys are gonna laugh. I have my sermon on my iPad, it's now overheated. Ryan, can you hand me my phone back there where I also have it? I cannot see the sermon any longer. Let's see how good I remember it without my notes. Thank you, bud. Let's hide that underneath there. See if it cools down for a second. Unanticipated consequences of being outside, everybody. All right, let's see how good my eyesight is now on the phone. I'm one of those old guys that like I've got the tiny phone. How many of y'all have the big phone? I hate those phones. All right, let's get going. Let's stay on track here. All right, so we said anger's no small thing. We said it's the root of all kinds of violence that comes. So it's not just that we degrade and we devalue, but it's also the root of all kinds of violence. So anybody, any Shakespeare fans out there? Anybody know your Romeo and your Juliet? Here's one of the interesting things, right? So Juliet's a Capulet, Romeo's a Montague. And at the start of Romeo and Juliet, the way Shakespeare writes it is really brilliant because there's this ongoing feud between these two families, but you never know why. And it's a subtle way that what Shakespeare is saying is it's so insignificant, but it's created all this problem. If it was some major event in the story, we'd go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But what he's saying is there's some small root of this that you don't, I don't even need to tell you about, but it essentially ends with the death of all the main characters in the story, if you remember. 
it produces this kind of violence so that the first opening story that we get and the reason why there's this duel to the death which results in like Romeo's friend being killed and then Romeo kills somebody and then somebody goes after Romeo and then Romeo and Juliet all end up dead because you know, they're these ill-fated uh, you know, uh, relationship that they have. The opening scene uh, of conflict is Romeo crashes a party that one of the Capulets is holding. That's all he does. He shows up, he wants to dance, right? But the, the grievance between the anger between these two families is so massive that it starts in some small insignificant thing and ends up in the death of almost everybody in the story. Isn't that a great example of how anger is the root of all kinds of violence? It's so destructive again and again. So we see that, and we see that in places like James chapter one, verse 20, where it says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you know that? Your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Or Psalm 37, eight, which says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, is that anger is at the root of this act of murder, and it produces all kinds of violence. It's like that tiger who, when it grows up, destroys everything in the house, and it rules you and attempts to conquer you. Now, the last, let me ask this question because I'm sure it's on your minds as I talk about these words of Jesus. You, you know, if you have anger in your heart, you've murdered your brother. The immediate question that we all wanna ask, and it's very telling that we tend to want to ask this question as well, is there any kind of anger that is right? Is anger always wrong? Let me tell you the answer to that question is this. The answer to that question is yes, there is such a thing as justified anger, but be careful. There is such a thing as justified anger, but be careful. So don't walk away today and say, Trent said there's such a thing as justified anger without repeating the second half of that sentence, which is what? But be careful, right? So listen to what we find in places like Ephesians chapter four, verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin and don't give an opportunity to the devil. Now I love that because in one quick sentence, what Paul has done is he's both said, okay, there's a type of anger that is justified, be angry, and do not sin, but in the same time he's recognized if you, if you hold on to this anger, it's gonna lead to real problems, right? Be angry and do not sin, and anger tends to lead to sin, so if, you're going, if you have this justified anger, be careful and it gives an opportunity to the devil for his work to run sort of amok. So don't give him that opportunity. Then, perhaps most clearly, Romans chapter 12, verse nine, which tells us this, it says, hate what is evil, hate what is evil. So there's a type of anger, and in particular, here it is. The anger that is justified is anger that is directed towards sin and unrighteousness that God himself hates. It is anger that is directed at sin and unrighteousness that God himself hates. But let me go so far as to say this. Even while my anger is directed at sin and unrighteousness, under the new covenant, where Christ is at work seeking and saving the lost and redeeming people from every background, anger directed at people who commit that sin and unrighteousness is not righteous. Is not righteous. To be angry at them, they can be an object of grace who must be sought out as objects for whom God's grace might come in power as we remember our own place before the Lord, right? So that's what we see. Now, let me say this in terms of kind of what marks perhaps an unjustified anger. The message of Ephesians chapter four, I think of Romans chapter 12, 
even of James chapter one, uh, verse 20, where it says the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, which is why in verse 19, right before that, he says, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. And James has in mind there what God said about himself when he revealed his own nature to Moses. He said to Moses, when he says, who, who are you? Who shall I say you are? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And then what's the next thing he says? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. That's what James is getting at. When he says be slow to anger, he's saying be like God. Be like God who is slow to anger. So friends, here's really what I want, to, want you to hear. When Jesus has in mind anger, that is unjustified. Anger, where he says, don't be angry, it's the root of murder. He's talking about anger that is not rooted in a passion for the righteousness of God. And friends, can we just be really honest? How many of you feel like you've managed a, an anger so well that you recognize it was only righteous and it was only directed at sin and unrighteousness and never at another person in an inappropriate way? Have you measured your sin out that well? Are you that good? That's why I mean be careful. Here's the other side or the other two things, is that sin that is unrighteous or anger that is unrighteous or unjustified is anger that is held onto or harbored, which is why he's saying anger can create an opportunity for the devil in Ephesians chapter four. So friends, can I say to you, that's, where, that's what I mean when I say that you might begin with a justifiable anger and it might turn into an unjustified anger because you hold onto it, because you harbor it because you, you cherish it and let it grow. And then the other thing is not just that it would be held onto, but that it's flamed up quickly, which is why James says, be slow to anger. That's a mark of unjustified anger. If you find that your anger flares up quickly, can I also say that it's probably an indicator not of your natural disposition, but that you have been allowing the seeds of bitterness and anger to grow in your heart for some time. If you find yourself quick to anger when somebody offends you or does something to you, that's a mark that didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen because of your disposition. It didn't happen because you're a more sort of volatile personality. It happens because you have not been diligent to cut anger out at its heart and to root it out. You've let it grow and in letting it grow, my friend, what you have done is you've let that tiger into your house and he is beginning to rule and dictate to where now it seems like you can't not give way to anger. If you're not slow to anger, that's a mark that your anger is not righteous. It's not justified. Now, let me say this. We need to understand then, sort of understanding what anger is. We need to understand the consequences. Oh, let me say this too, in terms of the justifiableness of anger. Let me say too, that if you do a study, I did this this week, if you go through every time the word anger or angry is used in the Bible, it's about 300 to 400 times. So it's over 300 times this, that word is used, anger or angry. And if you go through it, there's about 100 or more times where God is said to be angry because someone has offended his righteous holiness, right? And is God always justified in his anger, church? Yes. God knows how to be perfectly righteous and perfectly angry. It's never inappropriate for God. How many times do you think another person other than Jesus is said to be angry and it's affirmed by the scripture? It's justified. How many times do you think out of the 350 to 380 times or so that this word is used? Two for sure, maybe a third, but it's not clear. Is that telling? 
that of the 300 plus times that this term is used, God is always, when he's said to be angry, righteously so, and there's only about two, maybe three times that we can point to where a, a human being is said to be exercising anger in a justified and righteous way. That's probably very telling that we should be cautious about seeing our anger as justified. But let's look for a second. Man, all kinds of things are going on. My Bible closed up. Gotta find my place again. Let's look for a second back at the text at all the consequences that we see as it relates to being angry. So we need to understand the consequences of it. And we've already touched on some, that idea of that tiger growing. But look at what he says again in verse 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's what I want you to catch in those verses that I just read to you. Here's what's going on, is that Jesus is saying that there is both a temporary or a present consequence for anger, and there is an eternal consequence for anger. That's what he's getting at <coughs> when he says, those of you who insult will be liable to the council. That would be the Jewish Sanhedrin. That would be the group of people with whom there'd be a legal consequence for committing this action of libel or slander. And so he's saying, yeah, in this legal sense, there might be a consequence, but the principle there is that there are consequences in this life to our anger. But then he says, and those of you who say you fool will be liable to what? The hell of fire. In other words, there's an eternal consequence to harboring unjustified anger. Let me just unpack that with you for just a second. What are the consequences, both now and then in eternity, of harboring anger, this unjustified anger? The first, and when we think about present consequences, we can recognize a lot of them, but here's the biggest one. And again, Jesus is talking to us as believers and anger with one another. The biggest consequence is that it divides the body. When you harbor anger and unforgiveness in your heart, what it does is it divides the body and it degrades another person, as we said, for whom God has said they are valuable, they are made in my image. Friends, can I just make a point here? We far too often see ourselves through an individualistic lens and it is true that we are individually saved. My salvation can't, is not yours. Yours is not mine. We have to make a choice to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. That's true, that we are individualistically saved in that way. But we are saved to belong to a people called the church. And we should view everything in our life through the lens of how it impacts that group to whom we belong. Above all other things, you should consider how your actions not just reflect your relationship with God, but how they impact the people that you have been called to be a part of. What you do when you harbor anger in your heart is you destroy that for which Christ died. The thing Christ died to establish, his church, you aim to destroy when you refuse to forgive and when you hold on to anger. When you lash out in anger, you destroy that which God died, sent his son to die, to create. Do you see what a big deal that is? 
The present consequences of your anger are not just you being dragged into court as Jesus talks about here, but they're the destruction that happens and the destruction of our relationship with those outside the church who do not believe when they look at us and say, they let their anger run rampant with one another. There's no love, there's no tenderness, there's no forgiveness. Friends, listen to me. How dare you harbor anger in your heart and unforgiveness for those for whom Christ died? He has purchased them with his blood. He is redeeming and sanctifying them and you have no right to harbor anger in your heart. Now listen, when I say that, it is possible that you could not be reconciled to a brother or sister in the Lord if they will not come and ask for forgiveness. It is possible that you have no ability to be reconciled. It's out of your hands if they will not come and seek forgiveness when they've wronged you but you have it within you through the power of the Spirit to let go of anger towards them. It is up to you before the Lord to release your anger even when forgiveness has not been sought. That can always be done. Do you hear me? Can always be done. Friends, listen now. I don't say that to diminish a wrong done against you. It might be serious. does not justify harboring anger. It will destroy you and it destroys the body and there's no place for it. The second thing that we see is the eternal consequences of it. Why would Jesus say if we harbor anger, unjustified anger, we're in danger of the hell of fire? Why would he say that? Well, here's why. Go to Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant and just to summarize it for you, he says this. He says there's a servant who is forgiven a massive debt and there is a story that he tells, a parable. He's forgiven this massive debt and then he goes out immediately and he's got another servant who owes him a smaller debt but he won't forgive that debt and the master that forgave the initial debt is furious because he says, how dare you be forgiven this and not forgive this small thing? Do you know there's nothing anyone has ever done to you that is as bad as what you have done to God? Your rebellion against the Lord is far worse than any sin committed against you. And again, not to diminish the sin of another person against you, but to help us realize exactly what rebels we are towards God. We have raised our fist to the king on high. Now friends, if that's the case, if I fail to forgive, if I harbor anger, what that reveals is not that I had salvation and then I lost it because I had this anger and it drove out my salvation somehow. No, what it reveals is that I never truly received the saving grace of God because anyone who understands what they've been forgiven releases their anger towards someone else. They let it go because they see how great the grace is that they've been given and they know how could I do anything other than forgive. So even where you can't be reconciled, you can let go of anger, maybe hard, may take years of labor in doing it, but there is the power of the Spirit to do it, friends. So that's what we see there as it relates to the eternal consequences and the temporary consequences. Now, let me say this. The last thing we need to see here, as I find my place, is that we have to go further than just dealing with the anger in our own hearts. Now here's what I mean by that. We have to go further than just dealing with the anger in our own hearts. You notice in verse 23, there's a turn that Jesus takes in what he's saying. In verse 21 and 22, he's talking to us about our anger. 
And he's saying, basically, don't harbor this anger in your heart. It's equivalent to murder. But then in verse 23, he says, if you are offering your offering at the altar, in other words, if you're doing the most important thing a person could be doing, worshiping God and bringing him a sacrifice, if you are at church on a Sunday, bringing a sacrifice of praise to God, offering him your mind and the study of the scriptures, if you're there, and you remember while you're there that someone else has reason to be angry with you, if you remember that you're the cause of anger and Jesus is assuming that you actually did something, not just that someone's mad for no reason at you, you don't need to run around for every person that is angry at you for no reason and start apologizing to them, but where you are legitimately the cause of anger in someone else, leave your offering, get up and go, deal with that and then come back and make your offering. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If he's saying you should stop doing that in order to deal with this, he's saying there's nothing that you shouldn't stop doing in order to go and make it right with a brother or sister. Go and ask for forgiveness. Go and be reconciled. Go and make it right to the best of your ability. Don't wait. Don't stop. In other words, what we could say it this way. He's saying you think you're bringing worship by coming here on Sunday and singing praises to him? If you do that, when you know you're not right with a brother or sister, the better act of worship would be to go make it right with them. And then you come back here and worship the Lord. Then you come back and pray. Then you come back and study the scripture. The truest act of worship is to be reconciled to the person that you know you've been the cause of anger in. And can I just say there, friends, if you know you're the cause of anger, or if you even suspect that you might be, to go and to say, hey, am I the cause of anger? Have I done, let me apologize and seek your forgiveness if that's been the case. Anger is so dangerous, we don't just deal with it in our own hearts, we have to deal with it in the hearts where we have been the cause of it in others. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So friends, here's the challenge. Can I say this to you? If there's someone sitting here today that you are not right with, you should not leave this place until you have gone and sought them out. You should not leave this field until you have gone and said, I need your forgiveness. I can't guarantee you what their response will be, although if someone does that, you better forgive them. What did I just say, Matthew 18? You go and make it right, leave your offering. And if they're not here, so you can't do that, call them before the end of the day. That's my challenge to you, don't let it Linger, it is a tiger cub growing into a tiger faster than you know. You're in danger. Hear the warning of scripture. You are in danger if you harbor anger in your heart. Now, friends, that's the challenge that is in front of us. Let me say, how do you do that? How do you put anger to death? And I just wanna, let me just point you back to what we've already said. How do you put anger to death? Well, you accept that what's in your heart matters most. It's not a small thing. So don't just say, my anger's not a big deal. That's the first step, is recognizing that it's a massive problem when it's in your heart. Then, see how grave the consequences are. Hear the warning of scripture today that says there are present consequences and there are eternal consequences to allowing that anger to be in your heart. Then third, Go and ask forgiveness. Don't you know that if anger's in your heart, friends, if you've been the cause of anger in someone else and you make a habit of going to them and saying, I may have caused you to have anger in your heart. I need to ask your forgiveness. 
to aid them in letting that anger go. When you do that, don't you know that anger melts from your heart as well? Anger begins to dissipate in your own heart as well. There's a, there's a direct relationship. And then lastly, the last way that we do this, remember what we said last week. We said Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the law is by giving us the spirit of God to live inside of us so that we who have that spirit might walk in obedience to his moral standards so that we might walk in obedience. He, he didn't just say, <clears throat> part of what he's gonna be doing each of the next five weeks after this one is he's gonna immediately cause us to say, man, I need a savior because that standard's too high. I can't keep it. I, I, I can't be perfect. I have been angry. Therefore, I have murdered. I need Jesus to save me. That's part of what he's doing, but it's not the only thing. He's also showing us that this righteous standard, when his spirit comes into us, is one that we can increasingly grow in living out. So press into the work of the spirit. Pray, pray. Invite the spirit to bring you a release from that anger, and friends, he will do it. He will work in you a peace that passes understanding <coughs> and a release from anger. On the way in today, I was listening to an old hymn, uh, and it was What a Friend We Have in Jesus. If anybody remembers that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it says, Oh, what needless pain we carry. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I was just reminded, later on in, the, in the, one of the later verses, he says, Do thy friends forsake thee? Do, thy, do they leave you and abandon you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Such a good reminder. In the power of the Spirit, go to the Lord in prayer and watch him bring that anger and take it away so that you might be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Take up the challenge of the scriptures. Seek to be reconciled. Release your anger before the Lord, lest it consume you. Friends, let's go forward in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are thankful for your word. We know that it is true, and we pray. This is a difficult word, but you spoke it. Help us to remember that. If anything I've said is unhelpful or wouldn't bear fruit for the sake of righteousness, let that just disappear from our minds. But let us hold fast to your word and not resist it in any way where it convicts us, where we know we've harbored anger, where we know we've harbored unforgiveness. Lord, help us. Help us not to justify it. Help us not to seek half measures of reconciliation. Help us not to half-heartedly say, yes, I, I, I gave a, an apology, I'm good. Help us to seek to be right before you and with our brothers and sisters. We want to, as a church, Lord Jesus, go forward in what you have for us. And we can't do that without being right with one another. So help us. Help us in the strength of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. And let's stand together and worship the Lord.